Hey y'all, welcome to God on Tap, and as always, I'm Nika Spaulding, and today we are pressing on in the book of Amos, and we're going to look at Amos chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. Amos chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, so let's jump right in. This is the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout, and behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please Cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise again the house of Jeroboam, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, well, if you have been following along with us day by day, then you'll see that we are actually coming up. This is a transition point in the book of Amos. And so if you think of chapters one through two, they're very similar. We would call those sort of like the nations or he's addressing the foreign nations. And then he narrows in his focus on Judah, the southern kingdom, and then Israel, the northern kingdom. And then after that, we really have what we call what some commentators call words and woes and sort of this accusation uh, and then judgment series that we've had, and then the woes that we've been talking through. And so a lot of spoken prophecies against the nation of Israel. And now we've transitioned into really visions. And this transition point comes, and the, the last chapters, chapter seven through nine, are a little, they're interesting. Maybe you could call them wonky, but it's kind of weird, weird to call scripture wonky uh, because, you know, God wrote it. But if you were to look at it, you could sort of pile all the visions together. There's going to be five visions. And really what we see is the first three are in this first nine verses of chapter seven. And then tomorrow we're going to look at there's this narrative that inserts itself into the middle of these chapters of something that happens in real time with Amos, with one of the priests in the north. And then we get back to the visions and then we're going to really, we're going to end the book on a positive note because the book so far has been like, wah, wah, wah. And so we are so much of the prophets. If you remember, they have the past, God's resume. They have the presence, this accusations against the, the nations and really what makes God angry. The day of the Lord, this great and awful day of judgment. If you are an oppressor or this really great day of deliverance, if you are the oppressed. And then there's often this future part, which is this really hopeful piece of scripture that says, even in the midst of all your debauchery, your evil, your wickedness, there is still hope for you because God is good and he will make things right. And Amos is, wow, really lacking that. And so we have to really hang on until the book of Amos to get this little note of, but it's okay, it's going to be good in the end. But today we really get a picture of Amos that if you were to just read the first six chapters of the book of Amos and you'd be like, tell me what Amos is like. 
uh, you might be like, dude is angry, disgruntled, rightfully. I mean, look, anger is a good emotion when it's, it's rightfully brought about, but you, you might not have a full picture of Amos. And today, and looking at these prophecies, um, excuse me, in these visions, in this book of prophecy, you really get a picture of his, his empathy, his mercy, his willingness to stand up for Jacob. It's a really incredible picture and one that should hopefully remind us of Moses. And so if you remember, so I want to play this out for us because this is a really, we're going to, th- we're going to take a line and we're going to, it's going to start with Moses. We're going to thread it through Amos. And then we're going to take that line all the way up to uh, the great prophet, which is of course, Jesus Christ. And so I want y'all to see what's happening. Moses is the first and great prophet for the most part. I mean, he just is not for the most part. He is. I don't know why I qualified that. Moses is the dude. Moses is God's mouthpiece. We've seen this before. We've talked about it. He is the he is the epitome of what it means to be a prophet. A prophet is a mouthpiece for God. It's not necessarily a future telling person so much as as a person who speaks for God. And God says Moses, "Hey Moses, you're going to go to the king. You're going to go to Pharaoh. You're going to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, and then you're going to lead them." So he's going to be a prophet. He's going to be priest like. He's going to be king like. He is the great priest. That, or excuse me, the great, well, he is that too, but he's the great prophet. And then he says, hey, a better prophet is going to come. This is what Moses says. He's like, y'all think I'm the stuff? Y'all don't even know. A better prophet is coming. So when we get to the prophets and we've got, you know, the big ones, we've got like Isaiah and Ezekiel, Jeremiah, those guys, Daniel, big ones. But then you've also got Amos, Joel, these other, you know, Micah, Jonah, Obadiah, we're, we're left wondering if we didn't have the full picture, let's say we didn't have the New Testament, we would potentially be looking at these prophets and saying, are you the new and better Moses? Are you the one that Moses himself said, hold on to your britches, folks, a better one's to come. And since we have the full counsel of scripture, we obviously know, no, it's not. We, we know that Jesus, not Amos, not Obadiah, not Joel, not Isaiah, is the better prophet that was to come. But we can trace that thread all the way through the Bible. And so how do we see that? Well, remember, part of a prophet's role is to speak on behalf of God. Certainly Moses did that. So much so that he gives us the law. He's like, do you see these tablets? These are the Ten Commandments. Not only the Ten Commandments, here's the full law. We know that it was written down over time, that we have this full counsel of scripture. And then what a prophet also does, or that we see prophets do, what Moses does, is when the people disobey, and you can you can pretty much pick any time you want in the Israelites' history, but what we see is Moses being a mediator, standing between God and the people saying, God, let me remind you of your own character. Gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, that, that language that we see throughout the Old Testament that's carried forward. Moses is like, God, for your own glory, the people cannot stand up against your judgment. Could you relent? Please, por favor, merci beaucoup. And so we see Moses do that. The, the prophets that are to come are going to do very similar things. And this is where in these visions, this is what we see Amos do. It's really incredible. So we've got these three visions. We've got the first one, the locust forming. If you want to hyperclick, double-click, right on those locusts, go read the book of Joel and you'll learn even more about locusts. It's often language used of the day of the Lord. God used locusts, if you remember. It's also part of one of the plagues of Israel. So we have this locust coming. 
And it's after the king's harvest, the mowing, and it's going to be devastating. It's going to take out all the crops, which again, if you don't have crops, what do you eat? You're going to starve to death. It's going to be bad. You have no money. It's horrible, you know, terrible. And so what does Amos do? Well, so far, he seems like a curmudgeon, right? And, and a rightful one. Look, I'm not hating on Amos. His anger is just. I mean, these people are being oppressive. And yet we see this softness in Amos, this very Moses-like way of going about prophecy. And he says to God, please forgive Amos, an outsider, someone from the southern kingdom, looks at what God is intending to do through the vision and stands up between the people and God. And that is crazy, y'all, because if you don't know, prophets are not often treated great. I mean, they're, they're not exactly, they're like, oh, here comes Amos. Great. Tell us all the things that we've done wrong. Can't wait. Hey, buddy, here, I made you some cotton candy. Like, that's not what the prophets are experiencing. Even Moses, right? The people grumble against Moses. They're like, Moses, you stink. We'd rather be back in Egypt, which is crazy. You've been oppressed in Egypt by an unrighteous Pharaoh who's making you make bricks and all kinds of hard labor. And it's awful. And people should be free. They should not be enslaved. And they're like, mm, this desert. Ew. And so they tell Moses, we, what do you, would you bring us out here to die? Right? Prophets are not exactly the people's favorite people. And so you see this incredible moment in Moses where he's like, Lord, you, you have to relent for these people. They're your people. You have to relent. So when we see Amos do the same thing, it gives us such this full-body picture of what it means to be a prophet. Right? And, and so he does it first with the locusts, and then we see it again where it's the fire. And again, fire is often used in Day of the Lord imagery. You've got locusts, you've got fire. You also have overripe fruit, things like that, that are very Day of the Lord imagery. And again, he's like, God, please cease. How can Jacob, and Jacob is again this term, it's metonymy, it's, it's sitting in place of this nation. How could they possibly stand up under this, what you plan to do? And then again, we see the plumb line. And um, there's a little bit of... Uh, commentary about what this means. A lot of people think a plumb line is often what's used to determine what is straight. And so a lot of people think this is God saying, hey, I'm setting a line here and showing Israel that they are crooked. I'm good with that translation. It can mean a couple of other things. Um, but essentially, either way, whatever, whether you think it's God saying, hey, this wall is weak, or you thinking, hey, I'm going to take down your strong wall, or if you think it's pointing out the crookedness, or if you mean God's setting a line and I will not pass across this line again, those are all interpretations of it. It's still a vision that he's saying, I will, I will never, the high places of Isaac, which are the high places in the northern kingdom, are going to be made low. And the sanctuary of Israel, the, all, everything that I've been warning to the people of Israel is going to come true. And so we go from a transition of two, two visions where we see Amos really asking God to relent to the third vision. We are really transitioning from uh, divine patience as one commentator says, to divine judgment. We're going from warning, warning, warning to I, I'm done. Uh, it, actually, I'd, recently my roommate adopted a dog, and she's she's a great dog. She's super obedient. She's eight months old, so we're in the midst of training right now. And I kind of think of it like this. There's From the couch, I give verbal commands to my dog and warnings all the time. I'm like, Corey, uh, excuse me. I'm going to need you to sit. Or I'm going to need you to get on your bed. or I'm going to need you to stop. And one of the warnings is leave the cat alone, leave the cat alone, leave the cat alone. And there's always this moment between I'm sitting on the couch giving these verbal warnings, Corey, I'm not playing, leave the cat alone, to when I finally stand up 
that's Corey's cue that we're done. And she knows it because her head drops low and she goes immediately to her bed, which is her place that she has to go to. Or if she really knows she's done wrong, she'll walk toward her kennel. If she's, you know, attacked the cat, which I don't, I don't want to be too crazy by attack the cat. Corey just wants to play with the cat. But, you know, cats, cats going to cat. Cat are like, no, nah, no. Nah. This is what we see happening. God is going from that sitting position, warning, warning, warning. I'm being patient. I'm relenting. I'm allowing Amos to step in, in, in place for you. I'm listening to his pleas to now God has stood up. And he, he, he's going to put Corey in the kennel. He's going to put Israel into exile. It's beyond that point. And again, we could focus on just the exile and just the consequences, or we could focus on how this is eventually good that they have had opportunity after opportunity to relent and they refuse to. And so in order for God to maintain his sense of justice and rightness, he eventually has to stand up. And that's what we see happening here is that God is now saying, you will head to exile. That Jeroboam, you and your people and everything that comes with you, we're done. And we, of course, again, see the fulfillment of this in 722 uh, when, they're, when they're carried off to exile. But I want to go back and I want to focus again on Amos, the, the Moses, Amos, Jesus thread, because this is what it's going to be our so what today as we focus in on what it means to be a prophet and what it means for us today. Moses brings the word of God. He is compassionate and kind to the very people who dismiss him, grumble against him, speak falsely of him, are angered by him. Fast forward, Amos. He's, he's not even from Israel. Those aren't even his people. He's going up to Israel and he's proclaiming these things. And actually in the next unit, in the next few verses in chapter 7, we're going to see some of the opposition he faces from leaders. And we see this kindness, this willingness to plead on their behalf, even though he's not exactly their favorite person. Fast forward. Jesus, as the book of Hebrews tells us, and as we see from all of it, is a better prophet. He's, again, a spokesperson for God because, well, he is God. And when you talk about a mediator between God and man, gosh, you can go to John 17 and think of the high priestly prayer where Jesus, on behalf of his people, the very people who are rejecting him, the very people who are going to come, arrest him, spit on him, beat him, crucify him. This is the treatment of prophets often. God's people are not exactly thrown ticker tape parades. And we see this throughout the history of Israel. We see this throughout the time of Jesus. And we see it even today. I'll tell you today, I believe there are prophets today, living, breathing people who speak for God. They are not often received by their own kind. And yet, because they're being molded and shaped by God, we see an unrelenting commitment to the truth This is what we see in Jesus over and over again when he speaks to those who are far from God on the margins, the outsiders, the desolate, the people who have who have ailments and illnesses. And he says, come to the table, come to the table, come to the table. You are welcome. And then he speaks to those who are oppressing and he says, you cannot do these things that he quotes from the prophets. And he points to himself and he says, look, I am the better prophet. And then, of course, in the greatest mediation ever is Jesus going to the cross and on our behalf, satisfying the righteous, just wrath of God is satisfied in the Trinity as God authors the salvation, Jesus accomplishes it, and the Holy Spirit applies it to those who would believe that Jesus is the better prophet. 
that the line between Moses to Amos to Obadiah to Joel to all these prophets of old, men and women who spoke on behalf of God and also had great compassion for the people of God, that line comes all the way up and stops and terminates on Jesus. And it's this greatest fulfillment of what it means to be a prophet. And then now. So so you have this line from Moses and there was this special office of prophet in the Old Testament and now moves forward to this incredible fulfillment through Jesus Christ. And now I believe that New Testament believers are called to be prophet, priests, and kings, that we are to be God's spokespeople, that we are supposed to rule and reign as we were always intended to, that we are on behalf of people meant to be ministers of reconciliation in the same way that Jesus taught us, so that our role now is to speak unrelenting, uncompromising truth to people and oftentimes to power while also being incredibly compassionate and loving and willing to step in for the very people who reject and hurt us. And so this twofold piece of prophecy I think is really important because I think sometimes the so what is we, I think that people sometimes in the advent of social media and online interactions have no problem screaming truth but I'm not sure I see the willingness to get on our knees and beg God to relent. That same peace that we see in Moses and Amos and, of course, in Jesus Christ, the greatest prophet of them all. And so here's our so what. I, I think we do have to have an unrelenting, uncompromising pursuit of truth. We need to speak the truth. That's what we need to do. And I do see a compromise on that. I do. And so here's, here's my challenge to us is that we would be truth tellers. But... If we have the truth and we don't have love, as Paul talks about, then we're just, we're like gongs, obnoxious. So my challenge is, is are you able to speak truth and be firm? I'm not, look, you can read the prophets. It's, it's sometimes genuinely harsh for the sake of provocative shaking and, and moving people. But it comes from a place of great love and a willingness to stand in, in the gap. And so that's my question is, can you love, have truth and justice and grace and love and mercy as Jesus has taught us to do? Just something to consider the next time you're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And certainly if you're a friend of mine, you follow me on social media. If you see me ever lacking in either of these, then please help me. Help me be a better prophet as Jesus has taught me to be. Help me to do all of these things as Christ would teach us to be. All right, friends, if nobody's told you today that they love you, I do. Way more importantly, the God of both truth and love, uncompromising, loves you. He's crazy about you. Peace.